<laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Scott Prasser, author of Robert Menzies' Man or Myth, the latest title in his book series for Connor Court, Australian Biographical Monographs. Scott Prasser, how are you? I'm very well, thanks very much. Look, I, I want to leave off with the the... the I think it's a hundred billion dollar question. Maybe it's now two hundred billion dollar question. How well has the Morrison government handled the coronavirus? Well, politically, he's handled it really well. Uh, his opinion polls have really shot up, uh, and of course, he was determined to get on top of uh, uh, what of this because in the bushfires, he was he came under a lot of criticism. I think unfair criticism because he went away for a week with his family for a holiday. Um, so he's really been putting himself at the top of running the response to the pandemic. The issue, the second issue, is that uh, have the measures that the government's taken in closing down the economy and putting lots of subsidies everywhere, uh, has that been the correct one? And there's two views. One, that he's, you know, um, used the rhetoric of care and love and all that sort of stuff that you have at, at the national cabinet level he's created. Um, he's, he's showed a very caring approach to people who are unemployed. Um, but some of us hope that maybe that was just part of the process he had to go through and that all the subsidies and payouts and the money that seems to be endless uh, will come to an end quickly. Now we hope that was the plan because if it's not the plan, Australia is in real trouble and uh, the Liberal Party is in even bigger trouble because they're adopting a, a completely different policy framework than what their foundation was all about. Well, so you raise those two questions about the, the electoral strategy and the policy strategy. Could, could I actually backtrack on that a little bit? Uh, could you help explain to an ignorant American, the National Cabinet, is that something that is in the Australian Constitution, or where does it come from? It's not in the Constitution, and in fact, a cabinet's not in the Constitution. Okay, oh. right. So a cabinet is a convention in a sense. It's a it's a thing that came from uh, Britain, England, uh, like a lot of your uh, stuff came from, uh, and it originally was the the advisory group to the the monarch, uh, which technically it still is. So the the national cabinet is one of the things that people like me might be critical of, where you bring all the uh, all the premiers together, but it's a cabinet that uh, doesn't operate like a, a real cabinet. A real cabinet is supposed to be, you know, you come to an agreement, everyone's got to stick to the agreement, and what you see with the response to the pandemic is anything but a national response to things. Uh, it has done a lot of goodwill, but it, the fact is that the national cabinet doesn't report to a national parliament, okay? Each premier goes back and reports. And to me, I, I call this executive federalism. I call this where we're putting more and more hands in the power of the executive, that is the premiers uh, and the prime minister. Uh, and so, look, we used to have the we used to have the premier's conference. It's the same sort of thing. I don't think it's, it's a great revolution. I think it's a lot of rhetoric. Uh, and a lot of, um, in a crisis, you have those sort of uh, situations develop. Right, but then do, do crisis measures like this become permanent? I mean, what are the chances that this is going to be a permanent arrangement for the governance of Australia? 
I don't think it will be permanent. I think that there'll be, um, uh, you know, breaks and disagreements as there already are uh, between the different states. We can't even, well, we can't agree on the time of day in Australia in summertime. Uh, so, so we can't even agree which states you should let people come to come in from. You know, New South Wales is a different policy from Queensland about in relationship to Victoria. Um, sometimes crises do lead to good things. Back in the 1919 Spanish flu um, pandemic in Australia, where about 12 to 15,000 Australians died, um, and, the, and the Commonwealth Government then tried to have a national agreement uh, between all the states and territories. And uh, the, the states and states very quickly, or the territories didn't exist then, the states very quickly went their own way. As a matter of fact, Victoria said, uh, back in then, that no one had the Spanish flu in Victoria, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, Queensland put up borders and people had to camp outside the borders and so on. And the Commonwealth basically ripped up the national agreement and the acting prime minister sent a telegram to all the premiers to say, could you please tell us, are you in this or not in this? And as a result of that shambles, that's how we got the uh, Commonwealth Department of Health came into existence in 1921 because the Commonwealth was only a new body and it didn't feel it had the expertise to deal with these sort of health crises. It had powers under quarantine rules and laws. Um, so that's, there's an example of a, of a, of a crisis. Uh, we, we had crises in the 1930s with the um, Great Depression and that led to the Premier's Conference, which was all the state premiers and the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister became the chair of that. And that led to what was called the Premier's Plan, uh, which was, you know, cuts to public services, all those sort of things. And it really put the Commonwealth increasingly in the driver's seat of federalism. Now, let me ask, usually we don't go to viewer questions till the end of the program, but this one's very topical on exactly what you were just saying. I was, in fact, going to ask it myself. Anthony's asking, or uh, he suggests the banning of some interstate travel is probably illegal under S92. Now, I assume that's Section 92 of the Australian Constitution. Yeah, that's right. You tell me about that. I mean, it's well, that, that was put in. Uh, that's about free trade and ensuring because we used to have tariffs between each state, right? Just like it was in Germany before German unification in the 1870s, and that was put into the Constitution so that there could be free trade. The debate is, and the, and the, and the High Court's got to really rule on this, um, is stopping people uh, stopping trade, okay? So that's the argument. Now, the tourism industry could argue that if you're stopping people to come to Queensland, you know, the best place in Australia to come to, by the way, for uh, tourism, uh, then you are stopping trade, okay? That's the logic. So that's a matter which uh, is, is, is quite interesting uh, going on at the moment. Good question. Right. Uh, now, your book is about Robert Menzies, and it has the provocative title, Man or Myth. Mm. <laughs> Let me first just ask you, which side of that are you on? Is, is it the man or the myth that we're well, we Robert Menzies? Well, Menzies uh, is, is probably Australia's, or not probably, is Australia's greatest prime minister. Uh, he, he was prime minister twice. Uh, 39 to 41, 49 to 66. He's one of the few prime ministers who retired at his own choice and decision. He wasn't being pushed by anyone. Um, 
Uh, no scandal ever resolved around him personally or around his cabinet. Um, and unfortunately, uh, because of academia being how academia is, uh, he, he's not been, we didn't get a full biography of, my, of, of Menzies till 1993. Now, he retired in 1966. Wow. So a full proper biography did not come out till 1993. Uh, while well, we've had you know several hundred books on the Whitlam government, which only lasted three years, and to me it was a great disaster. Uh, so Menzies has been downplayed um, in, in Australia and, 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 and by academia, uh, and because we tended to see him towards the end of his career, grey hair, we tend to think him of a bit of an old fuddy-duddy, and actually he wasn't. He really laid the foundations for modern Australia, uh, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and I think the illusion he gave was that nothing much was changing, when in fact a lot was changing, and he provided that stable framework. Big immigration, two million people came to Australia during his period from a different diverse range of backgrounds. Australia into new trade agreements. Uh, we got involved in regional issues, Asian issues in particular. Uh, and one of his greatest admirers is Lee Kuan Yew, the uh, you know, late uh, leader of Singapore, who said the greatest leader of Australia was Robert Menzies. Um, so it's very interesting. So Menzies has been really devalued and probably not even taught properly, and that's why we're doing another sort of book on Menzies. Now, I know you're a fan of that model of, that Menzies model of institutional stability in times of rapid change. How would you apply that to today? Or, you know, what would Menzies do in the current situation? Well, just remember, Menzies was prime minister when Australia went to war in World War II uh, after uh, Britain declared war on Germany. So he, he had just become prime minister uh, only for um, a short time. And then he was the person who had to say to Australians, it's my melancholy duty to tell you we're now going to be at war. And Menzies said about that, uh, he, he wanted to set up a, a sort of a government of national unity uh, with the Labor Party, who was the opposition, and he tried that four times, and that was rejected by the Labor Party, I think for politics, basically, okay. uh, right? While in England there was a national government of national unity had been formed uh, uh, under Chamberlain and then Churchill sort of thing. So he did, he did that. He then set up an advisory group that did bring in a wide range of people as possible. So Menzies was not averse to institutional change and innovation where it needed, okay? So he was quite apt at um, doing those sort of things. Right, but how would we apply the lessons of the, the Menzies years to today's coronavirus response? What, if he were prime minister today, what do you think he might do differently? Well, I, I think uh, Menzies' great um, heritage is being that he set up a new political party called the Liberal Party in 1944, 45. And from the word go, he, he believed that, that the Liberal Party, this new non-Labor political force, had to have a philosophy. The, the previous non-Labor parties were basically anti-Labor parties. And he said, we must be more than just a party of negation and negativeness. We must stand for things. And he made a series of speeches on radio called the Forgotten People speeches, where he spoke about the home, 
and the family and education. He's very big on education, uh, himself a scholarship boy. Uh, so I think what he would have laid out, which I've not really heard from uh, any of the leaders, is a set of principles on how we should respond to this, you know, principles about um, the economy, principles about uh, individual freedom uh, and so on. And to me, we've we've had lots of activity under the Morrison regime, uh, very active and very energetic, and that's to be admired and so on. But sometimes um, well, I, I haven't seen an articulation of what the principles. And, you know, uh, I, I'm concerned that sometimes our parliaments have not been sitting I'm concerned about civil liberties being uh, undermined. Uh, I, I don't want a policeman to pull me up and ask me where I'm going. Uh, frankly, it's none of your business, Mr. Policeman. Okay, that's my view. Uh, and and some of the measures being taken were had no medical basis of 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 action. Uh, I'm in favour of obviously some restrictions. So I think Menzies' big difference. Menzies approached things quite philosophically. He was a pragmatist, of course. He knew what had to be done. Uh, he knew we had to come to compromises. And I think um, Morrison has been quite good at that. So there's a lot of Morrison is quite likable, but I'm, I'm concerned as, uh, you know, are, are, we, are we going to just go down the path of uh, action and activity or are we going to be based on some sort of set of principles? That applies to other policy areas too. Right. But I think the, the conventional wisdom in politics today is that, you know, handouts are very popular with voters, uh, but voters couldn't care less about issues of principle. Uh, I mean, is it possible to turn principle into electoral success? Yes, I think I think it can. And I call this the policies of being, being different. Uh, and when Menzies uh, won in 949, um, he, he stood for different policies than what the Labor Party and what the orthodoxy was about. The orthodoxy was we should nationalise our industries. That was the, the very much the orthodoxy in the uh, English Labor Party. And, of course, the Labor Party in Australia tried to, to do that, nationalise the banks and nationalise the airlines. He stood against that. Um, he, he was very much in favour on a set of principles of home ownership, not public housing, not rental housing. Now, all the intellectual talk at the time was more public housing, um, more rental accommodation, and he came up with the notion that people should, uh, we should encourage people to own their own homes. We should encourage people for thrift. We should encourage people to work together as families, that this was their, their, their bit of their, their territory they could control. And that was very, that was against the stream. And that was a very set of principles. And throughout his regime, um, the Menzies practice largely um, some sort of restraint. The welfare system was kept in place, but it was a targeted, Australia had a, has a targeted welfare system, while not a universal welfare system. So Menzies did put in those sort of principles. Now, he's criticised for that, of course. He's criticised for not having more welfare. But the evidence says, look, Australia has had a targeted welfare system, unlike the European system, which is bankrupt, right? So we, our, our, our welfare system is needs-based, based on means testing and all those sort of things. Um, and so Menzies, to me, did act in a range of set of principles, what I call liberal principles, um, about things. Um, there's some interesting stories about Menzies too. 
when he was Attorney General in the 1930s, Federal Attorney General, right, uh, right. which, which he, uh, uh, the uh, Karl Marx was banned from coming to Australia. Uh, and uh, an academic went to see him about this uh, professor to say, look, uh, look, Mr. Menzies, it's terrible. I can't, I can't teach because uh, uh, I can't bring Karl Marx into the country. And he allowed Karl Marx to be imported into the country. Well, Karl Marx was 100, 180 years old at this point. Uh, what, what do you mean? That is a story. So I don't know how true that story is sometimes. But I think, I think uh, if you read Menzies' stuff on universities, he puts a lot of premium on what universities should be and uh, one of the one of the, the seventh principle, I think, is about uh, freedom of expression and viewpoints and so on. Um, I, so I think that's pretty worthwhile. Right. So we'll go to questions in just a moment. And if anyone uh, listening is you're ready with your question, now's the time to pop it in the question box. But I do want to ask you, Scott, one more question for myself before we go to viewer questions. And that is that you know, Menzies won a whole slew of elections, I think seven elections, mm -hmm. uh, during an era that was, I mean, in terms of the sweep of history, much more labor leaning, much more leaning towards increased socialism. You know, how did a liberal consistently win elections during such a, a, a labor period, for lack of a better mm -hmm. term? Well, Menzies was a brilliant campaigner, and, and this was a time, too, when people joined political parties, you know, uh, both sides had very big political parties. This is a time when thousands of people turned out to at a, at a public rally. Uh, often people would go to see Menzies at a public rally uh, and to boo him and to hiss him. And I've, I've actually talked to some of those people. Okay. They, end up clap, they end up clapping him because he was a terrific uh interactor with the audience. So in those days, so this was a time of, of great activity, more activity now in politics than, than today, where people can just send a tweet or something. That's not that's not participation in anything. This is where people joined parties, people went to meetings, we had street corner meetings, and Menzies was a great campaigner. And Menzies made a really great comment in the New York Times magazine, which he wrote in 948, which says, you know, there's there's two aspects of politics. There's the science aspect of politics, we're doing what you've got to work out what's got to be done in policy terms, what the experts think you should do, what politically you can do. But there's also a really important role of politicians is the importance to go out and explain what's going on. And I, I think one thing I do admire about John Howard and I also admire about Paul Keating uh, they weren't afraid to go out and fight the fight on the GST or tax reform or deregulation, whatever it may be, rather than saying, oh, on the latest opinion poll, uh, we better do this. So it's that willingness to go out and argue your case. And I think Menzies was very good at that. And it was also touch and go a lot of the time. He, he didn't win big majorities. It was touch and go. He took risk all the time. He was a great risk taker. Um, but Jim Cairns, a Labor Deputy Prime Minister of the Whitlam Government, um, has a lovely story about Menzies. And uh, it was towards the end of Menzies' uh, time in Prime Minister. Uh -huh. Menzies was talking about Australia going to Vietnam. Jim Cairns yelled out across the you know, parliament to him, you know, you're wrong, Bob, or something. Menzies wrote him a little note, come and see me. Uh, so Jim Cairns went to uh -huh. see him. And uh, Jim Cairns uh, was, was a left-wing uh, person, but a very, very nice person, by the way. 
and I went to see Bob in his uh, office and Mindy said, look, I understand what you're saying. I don't think I don't understand what you're saying. But we've got to be in this, in, this, in this war because of America. We've got to keep America involved in Asia. Uh, and Jim Cairns wrote this lovely comment that he, he said, Mindy was a lovely person. He wasn't power hungry. He wasn't arrogant. And he was probably one of the greatest politicians who knew, somehow knew what the Australian people thought. And I think that was a wonderful uh, comment. By Jim oh, oh. It does sound very sweet. Uh, look, I'm going to uh, be a little less sweet. I'm going to ask for money. Uh, I want everyone listening out there, if you're not already a member of CIS, please click the support link. It's up there in the chat window, cis.org.au slash support. Uh, look, we could really use the money. Uh, the coronavirus has affected CIS as it has all nonprofit organizations. The difference being that the CIS refused to apply for or accept federal support in the form of JobKeeper. So because CIS does not accept any government funding whatsoever, it's reliant entirely on, dare I use the hackneyed phrase, people like you to support. So please, if you're not already a member, click that support link, become a member. And if you go up to the $250 membership category, here's where I feel like a real shill. Uh, We'll send you one of these. Now, they don't automatically send these to people who do a $250 membership, but if you specifically ask for it and say, I want Salvatore to sign it, and uh, I will gladly autograph, sign a copy, and have it sent to you if you join CIS at the $250 membership level. Of course, like the video, share the video, you know, be part of the community. We appreciate it. Now, what I really want are your questions for Scott, and we have a whole bunch rolling in. I'll start with Anthony. Anthony's asking, what was the role of humor in Menzies, in Menzies' success? Uh, very important. Um, Menzies was very good, as I was saying, at public meetings, um, and uh, he would often be booed and so on, and he would respond not in like kind, but usually with humor, sometimes quite disarming humor. Uh, he was also had that view of uh, dealing with journalists, uh, and I think one young journalist from the Sydney Morning Herald met him at the airport once and said, I'm from the Sydney Morning Herald. He said, well, that's your misfortune, uh, and walked on, <laughs> and that was it. That was the end of the interview sort of thing. But Menzies um, had a great sense of humour, and, uh, uh, and and so that was very important uh, in, in, his, in his interactions. At the same time, in Parliament, uh, in his famous speech where he completely just shredded uh, the opposition leader, Bert Effort, in 1955, um, over the... Petrov Royal Commission issue uh, is a pretty ruthless speech. If you if you want to read a speech which pulls a person apart, destroyed basically Bert Evert for very good reasons, uh, because Bert Evert had just got up and announced he had sent a telegram to Molotov, the foreign affairs minister in Moscow, to find out whether there are any Russian spies in Australia. Uh, this, this seemed to be a very inept thing to do, and his own team didn't know he was doing it. Menzies came back, made a speech, and then called, a, called an election. Guess who won? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I have a question from Elizabeth, who I happen to call mom. <laughs> Elizabeth is writing in from the United States. What can Americans learn from Robert Menzies? Uh, well, I think the importance of having uh, a leader of depth, uh, uh, an educated person. Menzies was uh, a brilliant, brilliant lawyer. Okay. And I don't think this is understood. He, he was a, a King's Council, what we call a Queen's Council today. Um, at, at the age of 26, 
he headed led a, a major court case in the High Court, which overturned precedent. Uh, at the age of uh, um, 35, he was a King's Counsel. He was the youngest King's Counsel in Australia and the most highly paid. Um, he was extremely intelligent and, and uh, led lots of other court cases. He could have been quite a rich man, but he chose to go into politics and was not a rich man. Uh, so I think what it does is you need a person um, who is educated and informed. But he also came from a, uh, he didn't come from a wealthy family. He came from a small business family, if you want to call it that. They ran a small shop in country Victoria. Uh, he won scholarships to private schools and he won a scholarship to Melbourne University and he won five prizes at Melbourne University in law. So he put a high value of that. So I think that sort of seriousness about, about things and a commitment to genuine principles. Now we have a question that's not really about Menzies, but I'm curious what your view on it's from William. William wants to know, uh, well, first he's asking, is the Labour Party more favouring a republic than the Liberal Party is? So what is the, the party layout in the debate over the republic? But more broadly, would Australia becoming a republic lead to a greater recognition of Australia in Asia as opposed to Australia being an offshoot of the United Kingdom? Sure. Look, uh, the republic issue... Um, uh, the Liberal Party has traditionally been in favour of keeping the existing constitutional arrangements where Her Majesty is the you know, head of state in Australia. Uh, the Australian Constitution, of course, is an act of British Parliament originally, um, and we are were, we were a part of the uh, settled by a British government, uh, as initially as a convict settlement, as you all know. Unlike uh, America, which was settled largely by people wanting to escape government, uh, Australia was settled by government of people who were um, in prison of government. So that's the Labor Party has been a sort of a Republican Party, and part of that reflects uh, two things. The Labor Party came out very much; it was very much a Catholic Irish background, right? And for very good reasons, the Irish were pretty anti the British establishment and the empire, because Ireland, you know, lots of wars, lots of murder and mayhem, and Ireland separated from the United Kingdom uh, in the 1920s, okay? So they always had that sort of background uh, to it. Now, I don't buy the argument that Australia uh, has not been actively involved in Asia because of our, our links with, the, with Britain, that's the, that is quite inaccurate, and especially after World War II, uh, both sides of politics engaged with Asia. Menzies went to Asia many times. Um, we put in soldiers to Korea, United Nations Agreement. Um, uh, we put in soldiers to, there wouldn't be a Malaysia now if there hadn't been Australian soldiers. There was the Indonesian insurgency. There was the agreement with Japan in 1957. And just remember, uh, 40,000 Australians had been imprisoned by Japanese um, or, or been killed by Japanese POWs to Japan. So Australia has always said we had the Colombo plan. Um, so Australia has engaged with Asia uh, quite dramatically. And our foreign aid has always been more orientated towards the Pacific and Asia rather than Africa. We've really kept out of Africa. We never saw that as our our game. And, and also just remember where many of the countries we're dealing with in Asia are constitutional monarchies, Japan, Cambodia, Thailand, um, Malaysia to some extent. Right. So, you know, they're not, they're not, uh, they're not um, 
uh, unusual, and some of them had, had, had strong Commonwealth connections. So I, I don't quite buy that argument. And the evidence is, uh, uh, and we also traded with Red China without without a blink in the eye, uh, <laughs> even, even though we didn't recognise it. So there we are. All right. Uh, by the way, uh, Georgia in the United States was founded as a penal colony, but we Americans prefer to trace our heritage to the pilgrims in Massachusetts. That's right. Yeah, I never hear about that. <laughs> and it is the 400th anniversary of, uh, of Plymouth Rock, so uh, I'll be writing about that later this year. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Gay's asking, uh, what do you think uh, we are missing in those defining Menzies speeches? Do you miss the lost art of speechifying in politics? Yes, um, I mean, I mean, Parliament is no longer really an important place where speeches are made and discussions. Parliament is just um, a place where noise is created in many ways. Um, there are there have been some great speeches. I mean, I mean, I thought Morrison's speech during the election campaign, where he talked about the quiet Australians and giving Australians who want to have a go. Have a go, sort of thing. That was quite. That was quite Menzian in a way. Um, the trouble is, it's it gets drowned out by the noise from all the other sources of information. But but speech making. Um, and since I used to write some speeches for politicians, it's a pretty difficult task. Um, and politicians uh, to write a speech which is going to be memorable. But it has been lost by the soundbite on television and the tweet by somebody rather than a, a, a speech. If you studied Abraham Lincoln, he used to speak at meetings when he was running for a president. They would go for several hours when he was having debates, uh, weren't they? And five, 6,000 people would turn out to hear him. So, yeah, yeah. you know, quite quite a lot of, uh, and, and all these speeches were um, printed up too. They were by newspapers, it's quite interesting. Hmm. Right. Now, David wants to ask this. I don't know how. Uh, well, I'm sure you'll have an opinion on this. I'm not sure what it will be. <laughs> David wants to ask, well, why is it today we find no fact, truth, logic or science in the mainstream media? You know, only ideologies and the conservative side of politics seems terrified to confront this. Yes, um, I, I think that is a problem. Uh, and I think the problem is um, the, 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 the politics of exaggeration gets, happens, which we've seen in the pandemic, haven't we? We, we had people predicting 100,000 people were going to die in Australia. Um, and the same with climate change and all those sort of things. Things get exaggerated. And it seems very hard to get out of the rhetoric. And the reason is, I think, that people who then say, I don't think that's correct, um, get pilloried, okay? Uh, and what I, I think my response to that is to say, well, um, you know, oh, you've offended me. I don't agree. Well, I don't care if I've offended you. Your view is wrong. Okay. We, we seem to be afraid to have the argument at times. Yeah. And then at university, by, by sort of having all this sort of um, political correctness and so on, where we're not having proper debates about, about things. Right. And the worst people who exhibit this are business. Business will cave in. Just remember, business is only interested in making a buck. That, that's all they're interested in. So they, don't want, they want no controversy. They probably would like no elections. Um, they, so they give in, and universities give in, at the first whiff of anything. And it's very disappointing. 
Well, I'm in favour of lots of, we hear about diversity. I like diversity of viewpoints. Right. right. Okay. So when I've taught in universities, I don't care if you're a Marxist. That, that's fine. You can have that view. Uh, but you must also accept that my view is legitimate in being put as your view. I think you're wrong, by the way, and I'll argue against you, but I will not be silenced because you disagree with me. Right. Well, something I know a lot of people are going to disagree on. Uh, our producer, Max Hawk Weaver, our executive producer, so we better do what he says. Uh, he's asking, he's pointing out that last Thursday, last Tuesday, marked a notable date, the 10th anniversary of the Labor Party coup to replace Kevin Rudd with Julia Gillard. Well, Max, you should have asked that last week. Uh, do you think we've reached the end of this sort of knifing politics or are the knives likely to come out at some point for Scott Morrison? I think Morrison is very, very secure in his role. Now, just think what he's done. Uh, he, he got there in August 2018. The party had been through uh, several leaders by that time, um, three or four leaders, two prime ministers. Uh, the first thing he did, by the way, what did he do? He took his ministry, not all of them whom had voted for him or had some of them had been in the Turnbull camp, he took them down to Albury which is where Menzies had his second meeting to form the Liberal Party in 944, in December 944, and talked a little bit about that. And I thought that showed something going on here. So he did that. He's also been, uh, he hasn't extracted revenge on, on the people who weren't in his side. So he's brought the party together. And we've sort of, we seem to have ended the conservative, if you want to use that term, and versus the progressive war going on inside. Um, you know, John Howard always says the Liberal Party is a broad church. Um, that means it, it needs to accommodate a range of views. It's not one side beating the other side all the time. So that seems to have um, stopped. And because, um, you know, he's our first Pentecostalist Prime Minister, uh, and just remember, after his uh, victory speech uh, in May last year, he ended up with saying, God bless Australia. Now, there hasn't been a Prime Minister who said that in Australia since John Curtin. Are you serious? Um, yeah, so um, he, was, uh, he was not afraid, because Australians are not that you know, enthusiastic about people who are religious zealots or so on. Um, so he, he wasn't afraid, and he wasn't afraid to have the TV cameras into his church to see him in his Pentecostalist mode, he didn't use it like Kevin Rudd did, having his Sunday interviews outside the church in in uh, Canberra. But so that's so that's quite interesting that he he did that. So I think uh, uh, Morrison has brought the party, the Liberal Party, back together again. Um, and uh, of course, his his survival, like like anything in politics, depends on his success. Of course. Now, he's won the surprise election. It wasn't a big election victory, by the way. It was a very, very marginal movement. They've only got a two-seat majority. This wasn't a landslide like Tony Abbott uh, had. Um, it wasn't a landslide. But um, he seems to be managing things. He ran a very, very good campaign. There's no doubt that he won the election for the Liberal Party, really. Uh, and he's got to keep his appeal to that that read that suburban regional core of people who aren't the inner city people because uh, that's where the values of the Liberal Party really are.
Right. Now, we have a couple questions about China. You'll be aware that yesterday, uh, Scott Morrison announced major defense uh, spending increases, including a uh, anti, uh, including an anti-ship uh, ballistic missile program. Uh, so there's going to be a you know a, a big defense uh, well uh, uh, expansion in Australia. And uh, what William wants to know is: is that directed at China, or anybody specifically asks? I'm, I'm trying to find it here is uh, do you think that there will be future tensions between China and Australia, even potentially any kind of war between China and Australia? And uh, we have a follow-up question on that from someone only known as Trouble. Uh, Trouble is asking us, what about Victorian Prime Premier uh, Andrews and his connection with China, the Belt and Road Initiative? So Mm. can you just give us your thoughts on Australia-China? Sure. Well, I I think uh, Morrison has acted very uh, appropriately. Uh, and alerting us, Australia, we, we've taken a lot for granted about defence since the Cold War has sort of dissipated. Um, and as I said, we were involved in quite a few conflicts, uh, Indonesia insurgency, uh, Malaysia, uh, communist insurgency and so on, helping those countries. Um, and uh, we've been involved in the Middle East and different issues. But that, they've... The Middle Eastern ones have all been a long way away. Europe's a long, long way away. And um, so I think he's being a bit, he's taking the, the right step. And I think Australians really need to think about defence. It's been off the agenda for a long time. Um, and we should, we, we basically relied on the United States to be the big blanket for us. But um, we need to paddle our own canoe um, and that requires more spending. And we also make sure the country is unified nationally. So if we are threatened, we can respond. Now, is China an issue? China is our biggest trading partner. China seems to be acting. We all thought when China became more economically developed, that it would become more liberal in the proper sense of that word. Okay, more democratic. Uh, that doesn't seem to be happening. They seem to be flexing their muscles. Uh, and this is this is causing a, a lot of tension, and there will be continuing tension uh, in this part of the world. Right. Right. Thanks for that. Uh, look, we are going to start wrapping up. Uh, so I do want to just give a reminder to everyone: please like the video if you like the video. That helps get other people notified about the video on YouTube. Also, we'd love to have you a member as a member. The support link is right there in the chat window, or just go to the CIS website and click that green support button. We'd love to have you either as a member, or if you're already a member as a contributor, or upgrading your membership. Uh, yeah, these are difficult times for all not-for-profit organizations, and you know, your help really would be appreciated. Uh, Scott, I want to ask you one last question about your book series. So you have mm. this series that you're editing, Australian Biographical Monographs. I know that there are other books in it besides yours. Yours is on Robert Menzies. But there are books on Joseph Lyons, Harold Holt, Joe uh, Bieckley-Peterson. Can you tell us a little about these other books and why people might be interested in checking out the series? Sure. So we this series has been going for some time, but uh, hadn't been progressing. Uh, Barbara approached me um, a couple of months ago. And so I've approached a number of different people, um, uh, some academics, some are journalists. So we're now going to expand it out and I will be keeping expanding it. So we've got Bajelka Peterson, a controversial premier from Queensland, George Reid, uh, a former prime minister in Australia and also premier of New South Wales at one stage. 
Lindsay Thompson, who was a, a short-term prime minister, a premier in Victoria, but a long-term minister and a person of um, great repute. John Gordon, another liberal uh, prime minister, short-term um, prime minister. Henry Baldy, premier of Victoria. Rupert Hamer of Victoria. Uh, and Neville Rand, Labor Premier of, um, of New South Wales. Also some controversy about that. So there'll be more coming on um, uh, as we, as we uh, find people. And these are meant to be, they're meant to be introductions to these people, basically. So they can't be a full biography. They're about 20,000 words. And uh, they, they pick up certain themes about, about the thing. So Mendy's Man or Myth, Bajolka Peterson in Queensland, was he a crook or not a crook or or extremists or not. Uh, Neville Rand, what did he achieve for the Labor Party and so on. So they're, they're thematic and they're meant to be really good little introductions because um, we don't study Australian history enough at our universities. We just don't study them. And I would think you should run a subject called, you know, Australian biographies and you can pick a range of biographies from all sides of politics and all different, different professions. And that would be a very interesting way to learn about um, about our history. So one final question, are you going to write a uh, Prasser's Lives update of uh, Plutarch's uh, lives and focus on the lives of famous Australians? Is that coming from you in the near future? No, no, my, my next book is on uh, royal commissions and which is my bag as people may or may not know. So no, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in institutions. The Menzies thing came uh, because I thought it was needed. Uh, and I had done something on Menzies sometime in the past. So, yeah. All right. So next time we have you on, it will be Royal Commissions. Everyone get your questions ready. Uh, thank you very much, Scott Prasser, for joining us. Much appreciated. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. I'd also like to thank all of you for watching and listening. We do appreciate your engagement, especially the questions, the comments in the YouTube box. Really, it's great to have you along for the show. That's why we do it live instead of just recording it. Tell your friends. We'd love to have lots of people listening live, lots more engagement even uh, next time. I'd also like to thank our producer, Emily Holmes, who keeps the show running, Max Hawk Weaver, the executive producer who keeps the whole thing going and on the air. The director of CIS is Tom Switzer. Thanks for making this show possible. And really, look, thanks, thanks everyone out there on the internet for making this such success. I love doing this show and it's great to have this opportunity. Take care and we'll see you next week.